Just a quick reminder that I do now have a second podcast called Track Nerds, where I have guests on to discuss travel, exercise, and movies and TV. Check it out. Okay, enjoy the show. So this is another movie I have seen before and was super excited to watch because I just, it really made an impression on me the first time I, I, I watched it. And uh, I kind of wasn't disappointed. I just, I don't even know how to explain it. Like you get kind of this musical that kind of the term, what was the term you used before? Like diegetic or whatever? Or am I saying that right? Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a term that just uh, references uh, sound in movies. So like diegetic versus non-diegetic sound. So like the score of a movie would be something that's non-diegetic. It's something that you as the audience are hearing, but not something that the characters in the movie would hear. Um, and with musicals, sometimes the songs are diegetic and sometimes they're not. So like in a musical where two people are singing a conversation, that would be like a non-diegetic some you know that wouldn't happen in real life but you know in this and other movies where the you know the the production is taking place in the movie like in that universe as part of the story that's diegetic musical right so so this is all set in berlin in 1931 and they use this cabaret show of these kind of oh semi-erotic dance numbers and other kind of things going on on the stage as almost kind of a greek chorus to the story going on when they're not showing the the cabaret show and, and sometimes the story will kind of then even parallel what's going on in their the characters lives outside of it and the the main characters are liza minnelli plays sally bowles who is an american who has come to perform in these Oh, actually, so she's over here because her dad's an ambassador, I guess, right? And she's kind of gotten into this uh, performing arts side of things. And then Michael York comes to town, and he's a, I guess he's a writer? Actually, why is he there? Well, he teaches, he teaches English on his side, but why did he actually move to Berlin? I don't remember why he moved to Berlin, but I remember he said that he's working on his, trying to get his... Uh, his PhD in philosophy. We never, we never actually see him go to school or anything. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, he's in Berlin. He ends up renting a room in the kind of same place where Sally Bowles is staying, and it's just, it's just very much kind of a, oh, not even star-crossed lovers, but just kind of a, an odd pair of young people just living it up in early 1930s Germany, and again, very much so, like we saw with Doctor Schwago in the background is this little party that's kind of flexing its muscles of Nazis. They are not in power yet, but soon will be. And that's kind of all going on in the background as we kind of go throughout the movie and see yeah. Sally and Michael York. And their relationship is kind of interesting. So she's very much this bohemian... Uh, free spirit. Yeah, free spirit, very openly sexually promiscuous in the 1930s and then michael york right. is the more prudish british guy who again early on i kind of wrote when he kind of says like he's not really interested in girls it's he's kind of like I, I would say it's probably fair to call him bisexual they don't put a name oh on yeah it i was in gonna say it's it's like it's it's like heavily implied that he's well at, at first it's heavily implied that he's gay right um but then obviously he does carry on that relationship with Sally, but then he also reveals later on and, you know, he carries on a relationship with that, with the Baron. Right. Who's kind of seeing both of them. Yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah, I'm bisexual. Oh yeah. It's kind of an interesting line where, oh shoot, I wrote it down here. I think where basically she wants to get back at him and it's like, 
well, I'm sleeping with so-and-so. He's like, so am I with uh, Max or whatever there. So like I said, the story is just kind of about the characters and, you know, they're kind of dealing with money. They're they're very poor and they do kind of establish this friendship that turns into uh, a sexual relationship on both from both Sally and Michael York's character. And he just kind of likes to spoil them and use his money to hang out with them. And they're just kind of trying, honestly, just young people trying to find their way in, in the world kind of thing. Like, it's almost, I guess, a, a coming-of-age story in a lot of ways set against the beginnings of the Nazi takeover in Germany, which is, is kind of fascinating. And it is technically, I guess you would call it, a musical, but all every performance is just when they kind of take their time showing the numbers on stage. So the, the plot off stage doesn't take a lot of time because so much of the movie is dedicated to these numbers and again i think i told you before i just kind of found liza minnelli mesmerizing in this her haircut has got awful but (laughs) you just can't stop staring at her and she's so mesmerizing and so talented uh just so full of love of life but also kind of manic depressive or uh, bipolar a little bit and just kind of you know always swinging to the extremes and just ha- has no filter in kind of a charming way in a way you wouldn't expect from someone from the 1930s it's that oh what's that again I, you know i can't even begin to kind of attempt to talk about the songs here really but that first solo number she has i again i'm just watching it in awe like i'm just like she just she just draws you in and you're just like you just want to see everything she does it, it's it's very for someone who's not into music, I guess, like myself, I just still found her mesmerizing. Yeah, yeah, she's great in this. And then, and we'll come back to the movie. So basically, I want to, I kind of, we're going to focus our discussion here, honestly, on kind of what's going on in the background with the Nazis in Weimar Germany in general between World War One and World War Two, which we will get into more of maybe Hitler specifically when we get to you know world war ii and kind of a little more going on with germany but i think this is a kind of a good to talk about the mood in germany at the time and kind of what we talked about with uh, sand pebbles and the different factions during a revolution that can kind of take a whole country one way or another so when i watched cabaret it, it, i was the first time you know a decade or so ago i was kind of blown away like oh my gosh how did this not win best picture well it lost to the godfather this is a movie that's see one two it was nominated for 10 Oscars and won eight, which yeah. I think, is that still the record for most wins to not win Best Picture? I thought I saw a stat like that somewhere. Oh, I wouldn't be surprised. I, I don't know if that if that's the case, but yeah, that might very well be right, true. Yeah, so something up there. Yeah, so I mean, it's, it's a movie that wins Best Director, Best Leading Actress, Best Supporting Actress, you know, then all the technical stuff with the sound and the art direction and the cinematography. It won the Oscars for all of that but then lost best picture to the Godfather. So honestly, it, you pick any decade, nine years out of 10, Cabaret is winning best picture. And it kind of has fallen off people's radars because it just happened to come out the same year as the Godfather. It's funny how we've come across like, that seems to be something that just kind of happens from time to time. Some movie, some years you have, you know, at the Academy Awards, like, man, out of all of these, like, we're just picking the least bad one. Like, but then some, like Green Book? Some years, yeah, but then some years, you know, you have uh, Lawrence of Arabia and To Kill a Mockingbird in the same year, or Cabaret and The Godfather in the same year. It's just right, right. funny how that works. Anyways, back to the show. Yes, so another one, and so so I don't know much about his career outside of this, but Joel Gray, who is still alive, I remember one year specifically at the Oscars, they kind of did this thing where instead of having like the previous year opposite gender presenting it. So like, say, if you're doing the best supporting actress Oscar, a lot of times it'll just bring back last year's best supporting actor 
winner to present. Right. There was one year where they did like five. They brought like back five best supporting actor nominees to present one of the awards and five best supporting actress winners. And anyway, so I kind of remember Joel Gray being one of the five because I think it was someone who I didn't necessarily recognize, but he kind of does steal the show in his own right in a lot of ways. He's the MC of the cabaret itself. So he's just kind of, again, he's almost the narrator of the whole story. And when he's kind of talking about specifically the performance of the cabaret show that night, the movie is kind of in a genius way, makes it parallel what's happening in the characters' lives when we see them offstage and their various adventures around the city. And anyway, so just a lot of scenes, stealing moments. And Michael York is almost, so I'm familiar with the term ingenue but i've always kind of just seen it applied to young innocent women in movies you know maybe coming of age tales but michael york here is very much the male version of an ingenue in in this movie where he's kind of young and bright-eyed and naive and has come to berlin to get corrupted by sally Bowles, i guess but in kind of a charming way that you kind of do i don't know you kind of like and and dislike both of them it's just kind of fascinating that was something that i did notice um as i was watching the movie is that there are and and i don't know if i've if i've really ever experienced this watching a movie before but just the way that you shift from liking the character to disliking them Mm. but like you still want them to succeed but like you know, there's scenes where you're like, man, you know, Sally just really getting on my nerves yes. in that scene. And then other scenes where like, man, you know, I, I really feel bad for her. And then the same way with uh, Michael York. Yeah. Right. With Michael York's character, you know, is, is you just going back and forth between, you know, being sympathetic and then just like, oh, my gosh, like get this guy to shut up. Oh, and just because I thought of it just now, Michael York, we did see previously in our timeline as D'Artagnan in The Three Musketeers which was a movie right. that was after this, but in our timeline, it was set before. And he'll be coming up in the timeline when we do Austin Powers. <laughs> I, I, you know what? I'm going to have to add that, add that in. We, when we get to the 60s, we could probably do a... <sighs> <sighs> Killing me, man. Okay, so an important side plot or side story, or again, just kind of one of the other little vignettes within the film, is the... the so there's one of their f- mutual friends who is smitten with the daughter of kind of a rich business person who's taking English lessons from Michael York. And he's kind of smitten with her. And ultimately, they decide it's not going to work out because she's Jewish. And he says, the tragedy of the whole thing is, I've just, since I moved to Berlin, been pretending to be Christian because it's not really a good thing to be Jewish in 1931 Berlin. Even though the Nazis aren't yet in power, they're definitely starting to turn public opinion against them. So ultimately, they do kind of they do get married when uh, he confesses that he is Jewish, and, and they get married kind of near the end there. But so the role of the Nazis within the movie specifically are kind of these thugs in the background, and there's different groups that talk about. Actually, the one uh, sentiment that really kind of is worth highlighting is when they mention the Nazis are great pawns to use to kick the communists out of the country. And then once they've done that for us, done that dirty work for us, we'll then take care of them and we'll be able to control them because they're just a bunch of thugs. I think they even use the the phrase thugs in the movie. Yeah, because it's when they're they're driving by that 
a homicide scene. There's the dead body in the street. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's a communist, you know, that's very clearly the work of the Nazis. And he's like, yeah, you know, they're, they're just going to take care of the communists for us. And the sentiment at the time was, yeah, you know, they're they're a little anti-Semitic, you know, and they have this, you know, some some problematic beliefs. But, hey, they're, you know, they're going to they're going to get rid of the communists. So they're all right and then you know they'll we'll, we'll control them you know there's there's not that many of them they, they they're not going to get that much influence and you know once the communists are gone then we'll get rid of the nazis and, and everything will be okay again and uh obviously uh things turn out pretty pretty bad yeah so it's kind of interesting we and we've talked around this kind of thing in a couple of the past recent episodes so when you get these revolutions and again russia went the other way so here's where you can kind of fall to either the extreme right or the extreme left. And I kind of wanted to illustrate the difference because we see it here when you look at Russia versus Germany. So the common people are fed up and it's basically the direction the influencing powers are able to push the revolution. So in a communist revolution, it basically says the reason the poor people are suffering is because of the upper class and the well-to-do people are basically keeping us down and we need to overthrow them and have a kind of people's republic that is in charge, you know, the workers. That's why the Communist Party is like, it's the hammer and sickle. It's the, the symbols of labor. And the whole idea is that labor must rise up against the wealthy oligarchy and seize power that way. So that's the extreme left. And again, you see the smaller versions of this in our own country. So that's a you know, a, a Bernie Sanders type where you're kind of saying it's the, it's the, it's the 1%. And, <laughs> but again, taken to the extreme, you end up with a, a communist revolution. And then the other side, and again, we see it in our country today too, is basically trying to scapegoat. So they're not focusing on right. the wealthy being the problem. They're saying the reason you're struggling common worker is because of corrupting influences within our own country and it's blaming the jews it's blaming it's blaming immigrants it's blaming so you can yes. you see that on the right right and you, you see that on the right and it's you know you, you see that with the nazi party coming to power and they're you know they're using that scapegoating and they're it's a a super hardcore nationalist movement and then they even took it a step further, the Nazis did, and they tied that nationalism then to race as well. So it wasn't enough to just be German, be from Germany. You know, you had to also be Aryan. Any, you know, the the, the Jews, the, the Roma, homosexuals, people of color, they were all villainized by the Nazis. Which, in an interesting way, and I'm not an expert on this, but it ties in to last week's episode with the Scopes trial, because you get into Darwinism and how some people use that to advocate for eugenics. And yes. the idea Which of, actually yeah. started, it was actually a, a, a movement that was started here in the United States, because at this time, there wasn't this perception of Nazis that we have today of the Nazis. Right, right. It's a hindsight is 2020 thing. Yes. Right. Because in the United States at the same time, there's, you know, the eugenics movement and there are even Nazi sympathizers. I mean, like. Oh, absolutely. Big Nazi rally, like fascist rallies that, you know, they wanted to set up a fascist government here in America, which I think we, we mentioned uh, might have been in the Paths of Glory episode. There was a group of super wealthy businessmen in the uh, the 20s or 30s that tried to set up a military coup 
here in the States oh. in the, the same way that Nazi Germany did. And the only reason that it failed is because the guy that they picked to be uh, to prop up uh, he wasn't he wasn't cool with it, and he basically tattled on him to Congress, and the whole thing fell apart. But oh wow, Eugen again. I don't want to necessarily spend a lot of time talking about eugenics here, but just kind of, I do want to kind of define it. So it's not always associated necessarily with violence and genocide, but there's definitely a slippery slope that leads to that. Because you on on a on a, I guess a if you wanted to kind of do a tame version. You could say like, oh, hey, if I want to say marry someone who's also good at running so that my kids are also good at running, that's in theory a form of eugenics because it's kind of selective genetic breeding. And, and the idea is that uh, eugenic movements in the United States were kind of like, hey, maybe we should just kind of encourage our best and brightest to breed with our best and brightest so we have a brighter, smarter better population which we say it like that doesn't sound scary but then the problem is yes the flip side right well and not just the flip side but then once you once you enable that mindset that and you know if you enact policies then it's it's not much of a stretch to say well hey if we're gonna go to all this work to make sure our best and brightest are breeding then maybe let's make sure that our worst are not breeding and then you end up with you know forced sterilizations correct yeah. So and yeah, and then the Nazis ended up taking it to straight up extermination, and now you're basically considered a Nazi if you're a eugenicist, even if you kind of initially met it from the tame side of uh, things. Oh man, I was actually listening to a podcast, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but it does kind of get into the eugenics things that have stayed prevalent way more closer to the present than you would realize, and it was basically with people who are mentally ill being able to be sterilized by their families in theory for their own good because they wouldn't properly be able to care for their offspring was the argument. And that some of these <sighs> laws are actually like still on the books because they haven't all or, or they're or were still on the books until like the last decade. And uh, I, I forget the exact details, but I was listening to a podcast where actually we're interviewing someone who either had been sterilized or whose parents were about to sterilize them. And like, they're just like in their forties now. And this is all semi recently, and the guy had to like kind of get it to try to get it to the Supreme Court so they could kind of wipe these uh, these laws away. Anyway, so that's eugenics. That kind of is a corruption of Darwinism because Darwin was obviously not an advocate of eugenics. He just kind of talked about how heredity and genetics is a thing. And then yes, stronger things can survive, and then they're the ones more likely to pass on their genes. But then people took that to say like, ooh, let's selectively breed humans and not allow uh, undesirable humans to procreate and then again you're ending up with the nazi holocaust which is getting ahead of us in our timeline but we're seeing then the beginnings of the nazis and what's to come here in germany and it's interesting how our characters don't know what's about to happen in germany and it does kind of start to hit ahead at the end so on the timeline and again i don't we don't have to get too much in the, the Nazi takeover of Germany here, but basically, so between 1918 and 1933 is what's considered the uh, Weimar Republic, and it's kind of an unofficial thing. It's not like they called themselves that. They actually called themselves the German Reich, uh, which basically just means realm, I guess. Yeah. A lot of times people associate, when people talk about the German Reich, they think of, that's the Nazis. That's, that's, they're like, well, they thought of themselves as the Third Reich. Like, there's, you know, 
there was a first and second Reich too, and th- those are just yeah, it's just a period of German history of German rule. Right, you can almost you almost be like like oh, even like I think a Lord of the Rings talks about the end of the Third Age, the beginning of the Fourth Age of men. Like it's kind of like that. The Nazis saw themselves as the beginning of a new era, and therefore they were the Third Reich. Is that basically how you'd understand it? Yeah. So basically, this period between world wars was just Germany suffered. So obviously, yeah, everyone's probably familiar with the hyperinflation. There was just a lot of political extremism and just kind of these different factions, not even necessarily vying for power per se, but definitely wanting their opinions heard and not being happy with the way things were kind of obviously they were all the blame for World War One was put, you know, financially on them where they're basically kind of ordered to pay reparations. Of course, then they don't always pay those and the disarmament requirements and basically the Germans just kind of felt very I guess, uh, put upon following World War One, and just kind of these decades where they're struggling. The As we get into the 30s here, that, you know, the Great Depression affected Europe as well. Which, in hindsight, like, the way that the Allies punished Germany with the, uh, the Treaty of Versailles was a little bit disproportionate to their, not their involvement, but the responsibility that they bear for actually starting World War One. Correct. Right. Why were they any more responsible than Russia? Right. And so, they, so like, they definitely had a reason to have beef with the Allies. Yeah, yeah. So, and again, I'm not an expert, but the Nazis were just kind of one of the many parties with a seat at the table. So, yeah, the different yes. factions are all talking. The Nazis are kind of thugs. It was, it was actually uh, hooligans was the term they used in the movies. They just called them a gang of hooligans. So they were definitely, though the radicals when it came to they hated immigrants they hated jews they were very open about kind of advocating hate and scapegoating other parties within germany and trying to purge those elements and they did have a seat at the table along with other factions who kind of probably just kind of you know had their nose in the air against the nazis let me just take this opportunity to point out that the the nazis are the national socialist german workers party and you will see people whether they're being intellectually honest or not is you know not really important but they'll say oh well that means that you know the the nazi party is actually left-leaning because it says socialist in the name uh, which is not true they co-opted the name or co-opted the word socialist because socialist parties in europe were popular at the time and even though they did kind of start out politically with this kind of anti-capitalist you know big business is bad kind of they kind of purged that element from themselves yeah well right so they they basically they started with that to gain the support of certain people and then they downplay that aspect of their party and then once they gain power they privatize a whole bunch of you know different aspects of industry um, and then they move almost exclusively to the nationalistic and racial components of their of their platform right yeah, just a, just a little side note nazis not left-wing <laughs> right it, it's it's academically ingenuous to kind of imply that again not that it they need it doesn't matter which side they're on because obviously again we talked about you know the communism in russia is extreme left so you there you just don't 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 try to right. say don't yeah don't try to no. say don't let someone say that both sides are extreme left it's like no there's fascism is extreme right communism is extreme left and both can be taken to dictator levels and genocide levels and that's not good but yes they just it was basically a marketing thing like you're saying very much like north korea is what the democratic people's republic of north korea it's like no it's obviously not democratic that's just a marketing thing exactly and yes. or or greenland greenland is not green <laughs> it's a marketing thing people will yes. sometimes uh spoiler alert be uh disingenuous if they're trying to sell something and make some give something a positive spin 
So, basically, yeah, the movie starts in 1931, and they don't give us another year, but the fact that things are kind of starting to come to a head by the end of the movie, and with kind of, you know, enough time seems to have passed that we probably are getting into 1932 or 1933 by the end of the film, even though they don't specifically stay. And I do think it's worth getting us one little... Th- Basically, I think we could probably go ahead and talk about when the Nazis actually take over. Well, you you can kind of tell, too, that it's that a couple of years have passed or that, you know, you're getting to, the, you know, 1933 and beyond and, you know, closer to the, the run-up to World War II because you have, at the very beginning of the movie, you have, you know, there's, like, the one Nazi kid in the cabaret and he ends up getting booted out. And then by the end of the movie, you know, you, you see the... The scene where everyone stands up and starts singing with all the Nazis, and then at the very, the actually the last shot of the movie that actually it still frames and then rolls credits mm. is that pan. It's a, it's across that reflective surface that shows the audience and the yes, camera, yes. and like half of them are Nazis. Right. So the idea is that this band of hooligans was slowly gaining support to the point that. And again, I'm not, so there's the Reichstag fire uh, in February of 1933, and it was a big enough deal that the Nazis kind of used it as an excuse to seize power. And Hitler was basically just the leader of the Nazi party, which again, everybody kind of knows that without really thinking about it. But remember, not the Nazi party wasn't in charge then the Nazi party takes over, so their leader is the leader, and that's basically when... Right, because, yeah. well, in the Reichstag fire, they, they blamed it on the communists. They said it was communists right. that burned the Reichstag, so we need, you know, the, the communists are obviously here to overthrow the government. So, yeah, that's how they use it. Yeah, so this basically then leads to the end of the Weimar Republic and the Nazi party now being in charge in, in Germany. It's basically Phantom Menace, right, where the... Or, or Attack of the Clones, where it, it is basically the same way the Emperor takes over in Star Wars is basically how Hitler took over in Germany. That you kind of right. just, you kind of obfuscate and make everybody think that there's an emergency, and then you take power in the emergency just to kind of help everybody out, and now all of a sudden you're the dictator. Which, and I, I'm not not super well versed in uh ancient roman history but wasn't isn't that how caesar kind of became I, yeah i was gonna say i was gonna say it's kind of it's kind of similar there not necessarily the head of a party per se and right but he got emergency wartime powers that he just never gave up yes yes he basically was about to get booted from his role as a consul or whatever and that's so th- it's the phrase crossing the Rubicon, where basically he was too getting too powerful for his own good, so they're going to go out after him and kind of put a stop to him. He starts coming back towards Rome with his army and then breaks protocol by crossing the Rubicon with the army, which was not allowed, but he's basically like saying, oh, I'm taking over. And so then the other consul kind of flees, I think Pompey or whatever, flees Rome, and now Caesar's in charge because he had the gall to bring the army to Rome and, yes, took over, but he was also crazy popular which I guess Hitler ultimately was too, but I don't feel like Caesar was right. even more commonly popular without the fear factor because he was he was kind of beloved versus Hitler. I sure. think was feared. If the, and there's kind right. of a different distinction there, I would say. Yeah, for but sure. but yes, a similar kind of just uh, rise to power there and and, and taking control because and you could, you could throw you know Napoleon in there too with uh, all that you know. Oh the, yeah, yeah. I, I, I yeah. do okay. I think that Napoleon and Caesar probably have even more in common. Yeah. Well, especially well. <laughs> Not to turn this into the 
to the not cabaret episode, but when uh, when Napoleon uh, leaves Elba after he had already been exiled, and comes back with his little band of like you know a few hundred guys, and then every army that sent out to meet him just joins him, and uh, yeah, eventually he's just like, oh, now I'm the Emperor of Paris again, or Emperor of France, because everyone. The, the the army's mine now because I'm so beloved. And, right. And I've never got to... the impression that Hitler was that popular. I mean, right. He definitely. Yeah. I mean, there was definitely. He definitely had his supporters and his his you know his loyal supporters. But I think a lot of it was just kind of uh, falling along through fear. Yeah. Versus love and pride, if that kind of makes sense. Right. And kind of like a fear pyramid almost, because you have you know like he instills fear in his underlings who instill fear in their underlings who instill fear in the general public. Right. So that's right. it allows us to get away with uh, a whole hell of a lot, which yeah, you know, teaser for upcoming episodes yes like i said well, that's probably a good point as far as the, the german history goes so i kind of wanted to look up exactly what a cabaret was and we kind of explained it a little bit but basically it, it, it kind of has it can cover a lot of things it's basically just any kind of stage entertainment that kind of covers a lot of different things so yes in the show here it seems to be kind of more on the singing and strip teases kind of thing and that is fairly common. They they can definitely be adult oriented, but that's not necessarily doesn't necessarily have to be part of it. So that'd be more like the burlesque side of things, I guess. But I would say, I guess, yeah, burlesque falls under maybe the umbrella of cabaret. Cabaret covers a lot of things, and then you could have specific types of shows underneath that. I'm probably just confusing it more than I'm uh, explaining it. But basically, it's the type of show that they are having, and. They sing a lot about it yeah. in the movie. <laughs> apparently, when this movie came out, people were were shocked at all of the, you know, the explicit nature of the movie and especially of the cabaret scenes. But like, you know, watching it now, it's like there really wasn't anything that serious. I mean, maybe some stuff is implied, but yeah, I, I don't know. It didn't really seem like it was that big of a deal. Well, and again, we are we are talking 1972. So we're only a few years into kind of Hollywood's agreement to end following the Hayes Code. So you were kind of having still very wholesome Hollywood movies until 1969. So we're only three years in to where they were kind of more okay with doing risque stuff on screen. And then to top that yeah. off, you're setting it decades before in 1931. Well, and I'm in 1972, you know, having a, an openly promiscuous character and an openly bisexual character, that was probably a, a lot bigger deal than it was today. Yes, yes. And again, Americans kind of have a reputation in Europe as being far more prudish than the Europeans. So I think even in 1931, and again, she was, she kind of was talking about these things with a select group of friends and the cabaret kind of was more of an underground scene. It wasn't like this was, you know, where everybody was taking their families on Friday night or anything. So right. it's not just like, you know, with the 1960s, you know, sexual revolution in the United States that that's when it became more and more okay and increasingly okay to just kind of be more open about these kinds of topics. It's like, no, humans have been humans. People, going back to ancient Rome, people were drawing pornographic graffiti 2,000 years ago in Rome. So it's right. it's nothing new. It's just, uh, I think it's all just kind of our perceptions and in, in the United States specifically kind of has it with its Puritan history is kind of always been a little like la 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 uh, about yeah. about that kind of stuff uh, way 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 more than our yeah. European counterparts. But anyway, we're getting kind of off the rails there, and let's go ahead and kick it to next week. 
when we'll be dealing with the Japanese invasion of China in 1937 in the 2008 film Ip Man. <laughs> 